Welcome aboard the Paul Beasley Club. 40, headed for the 1982 World's Fair. We'll be there. From the red earth of Mexico, it's coming. From China, a piece of the Great War, it's coming. Every corner of the earth, it's coming. And it's coming soon. You've got to be there. Point me in the right direction. I'll be there. The World's Fair. You've got to be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. Twenty-five years ago today, Knoxville welcomed the world at its front door. One man's idea mushroomed into years of planning and preparation, and when the so-called scruffy little city was transformed into an international showplace, the 1982 World's Fair got underway. It was an event that would earn Knoxville global status, and it's our story. Good evening, I'm Bill Williams. For 184 days in 1982, Knoxville was hostess to the world. But like any good hostess, she had to get her house in order before she could welcome all those guests. There were areas to be cleaned up, roads to be repaired, structures to be built, and the project was not without controversy. But in the end, the city and its citizens came together and pulled off the most spectacular success story ever. Now, there were all kinds of memories. We all have our favorite memories. And in the next hour, we'll relive some of those memories and remind you of some you may have forgotten. There was a technology, the cutting edge technology shown at many of the exhibits, technology which now seems archaic. Some of those ideas did progress. Many didn't go any further than this fair site. But before we dig into those archives, Let's hear from a man we haven't heard from in years. A man who many say had the most to do with making the 1982 World's Fair here in Knoxville a reality. And that man is Jake Butcher. I, I thought it would just be a, a great if we could have the World's Fair here. Now, if I'd have been successful and, and hadn't had the great debacle in banking that happened to me, we might have been challenging Nashville today. You know, we, we really had things going. Jake Butcher was a front man with the contacts to get things moving. We'll hear more from him later. But there was also a board of directors, a dream team of political and business heavy hitters who were determined to prove that Knoxville could meet the challenge. May 1st, 1982 was just a wonderful day. It was a beautiful day. President Reagan came and uh, 
I remember uh, the headlines in the paper was, Scruffy Little City Does It. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and Mrs. Reagan. gentlemen, your governor, Senator Baker, your congressman, members of our cabinet, and a good friend and loyal Tennessean, Dinah Shore, it's a special pleasure for me to be here this afternoon in the shadow of the Sun Sphere, a symbol of energy potential near the banks of the Tennessee River, whose force we have tapped for centuries. All Americans can be proud of this World's Fair that we open today. For the next six months, we'll be host to representatives of 22 nations, more countries than have participated in any world exposition in more than a decade. Here in Knoxville, in the Tennessee foothills, in the hometown of John Duncan, the home state of my good friends Howard Baker, Lamar Alexander, Robin Beard, and Jimmy Quillen, the world will share its knowledge accomplishments and hopes for tomorrow. Americans welcome the world to Tennessee. The technology exhibited here once seemed as fanciful as the extraction of sunbeams from cucumbers in Gulliver's Travels. But as de Tocqueville said, when people live in democracy, enlightenment and freedom, their societies will be marked by scientific genius and discovery. The countries represented here could hold out the hands of friendship and cooperation. Let us join them. Inventors of the world share the discoveries of their laboratories, universities, and research centers. Let us pool our knowledge, technology, and our dreams. In the days and months ahead, let this spot be the focus of progress, not only in the field of energy, but for the cause of peace. The theme of this fair, Energy Turns the World is appropriate for this decade as our nation and many of our allies struggle to produce and use energy efficiently to provide for our energy security. We've seen the havoc and felt the pain brought on when vital energy sources outside our influence have been cut off. We've seen our economies manipulated, our industries hamstrung, and our people squeezed between scarcity and inflation. Together, and independently, we've taken steps to make sure that never again will we be so vulnerable. Here in America, in this administration, our national energy policy dictates that one of the government's chief energy roles is to guard against sudden interruptions of energy supplies. In the past, we tried to manage a shortage by interfering with the market process. The results were gas lines, bottlenecks, and bureaucracy. A newly created Department of Energy passed more regulations, hired more bureaucrats, raised taxes, and spent much more money, and it didn't produce a single drop of oil. In fact, American oil production continued to decline. Just as in today, and in too many other cases, government did not solve the problem, it became the problem. Our administration is determined to press forward for real solutions.
Already, we have dramatically increased our strategic petroleum reserve. Instead of managing scarcity, we'll help ensure continued supplies from a strategic stockpile, alleviating shortages while permitting the private market to work. Our stockpile, I'm happy to tell you, is now one of the largest in the world, more than a quarter million billion barrels, an amount greater than 135 days' supply of the crude oil we import from the Arab OPEC nations. Last year, this reserve has been stocked with more than twice as much oil as was accumulated in the preceding four years. We will increase it to nearly three times our current supply as a symbol to our allies of our resolve to reduce our vulnerability. We will ensure that our people and our economy are never again held hostage by the whim of any country or cartel. In the area of conservation, our industries and our citizens have increased energy efficiency and cut back on waste. The amount of goods and services that we produce for each unit of energy went up last year by 4.5%, the greatest increase in 30 years. For the last several months, our net oil imports have been less than half of their 1977 levels. But energy is still a great concern. Even with our improved conservation, we consume 16 million barrels of oil a day. Now, let me give you an idea how many 16 million barrels is. Imagine the distance to the moon. If those 16 million barrels were stacked up each day, they'd reach the moon about once a month. We're the world's largest consumer of energy, but we use that energy well. We are one of the most productive nations in the world. Estimates show that the 25 eastern states and Washington, D.C., which expends most of its energy shuffling paper, produce about as much in goods and services as the entire Soviet Union. And with only 5% of the world's population, we Americans account for more than 21% of the world's output. But we can't afford to be complacent. Our energy appetite means our energy production must be allowed to keep pace. In the last year, our oil production in the lower 48 states ended its decades-long decline. In 1981, America produced nearly 90% of the energy that it consumed. What caused this turnaround? The same principle responsible for most of the prosperity, production, and progress in the world today, free enterprise. Our economic and energy problems were in large part caused by government excesses and quick fixes, not by a basic scarcity of supply. Our principles have not failed us. Too many times, we have failed to live up to our principles. Since January 1981, when I ordered immediate decontrol of oil, we have removed requirements for more than a million man-hours of energy-related paperwork eliminated more than 200 energy-related regulations, cut taxes to encourage capital investment, begun to dismantle the Department of Energy, and produced or reduced spending nearly $5 billion from the levels proposed by the previous administration. We are unleashing again the power of our people and the forces of democratic capitalism. Skeptics said the decontrol of oil would send prices soaring, 
but the price of gas at the pumps has been dropping. Gasoline prices at last no longer lead inflation, but are actually holding it down. Within a year of decontrol, more than 1,000 new drilling rigs began searching for oil and natural gas. 40% more successful oil wells were completed in 81 than the year before. In February, our oil production was the greatest it's been for the last two years. There is magic in the free marketplace, and it works. Although oil has been decontrolled, natural gas, the nation's largest source of domestic energy production, remains under price controls. As a result, natural gas wells have increased only 10%. The legislative agenda this year is too crowded to handle the issue of natural gas decontrol. But if America is to provide for her energy security, if we're to continue growing more self-reliant, if we're to free ourselves from foreign pressure, we must press toward the ultimate solution to our energy problems, the decontrol of all of our energy sources, including natural gas, and this we shall do. Within our boundaries and just off our shores, experts estimate that compared to our current reserves, three times as much oil and gas are yet to be discovered. We're also blessed with a quarter of the free world's coal and uranium resources. In the last year, America's also greatly increased exports of coal, strengthening our economy and helping our allies lessen their dependence on imported oil. In 1981, exports from this country of coal reached 110 million tons. That's 20% more than the previous year. Coupled with our decreasing oil imports, this meant America's net dependence on foreign energy fell to less than 13%. It was nearly 25% in 1977. Though quite small, our use of solar power is expanding. Many people across the country are experimenting with renewable technologies such as wind and geothermal power. The Synthetic Fuels Corporation has also become operational managing loan guarantees and price supports for some important projects. But heavy reliance on these sources is still in the future. We still have to depend on practical sources available today, such as nuclear power, which now produces more of America's electricity than oil, the Clinch River reactor, which will use new breeder technology, and the Oak Ridge National Laboratory not far from here, symbolize our commitment to developing safe, nuclear energy and technology to secure our energy future. Our Secretary of Energy, Jim Edwards, tells the story about the time in his home state of South Carolina. He spotted a car bearing a bumper sticker, split wood, not atoms. Well, he said he didn't think the fellow driving the car had ever split much wood, especially not a one enough for a typical family's needs, because it isn't very easy. I can testify to that. But Jim said he wanted to tell him that America must split both atoms and wood. It'll take the use of many technologies to satisfy our future energy demands. We're pursuing our goal of energy security while still respecting and protecting our environment. The staggering statistics of progress that I've recited today are growing independence from foreign oil and our increasing sophistication in using our reserves reflect American ingenuity at its best. This progress didn't come about as the result of some government program. 
It's the result of getting government out of the way. We're applying the same philosophy to our economy, restoring incentive, rewarding risk-taking, and hard work, encouraging investment and returning more freedom to the marketplace. An economic mess has been piling up for more than 40 years. Our economic recovery program began only six months ago, but already there are visible signs of success. In the last six months, inflation, which was 12.4%, has been running at a rate of only 3.2%. And last month, the consumer price index, the measure of inflation, actually went down. For the first time in 17 years, not only did goods not get more expensive, they got cheaper. In the six months since our tax cut took effect, the rate of personal savings has increased. And we've seen recent gains in housing starts, auto sales, and retail sales. Now, we still have a long way to go before our economy is back in shape. And this recession is causing great pain to too many of our people. But there was a thing called the Misery Index that was created in the 1976 presidential campaign. It was used against the then incumbent President Ford. And the Misery Index had been created by adding the rate of inflation and unemployment. And at that time, they were something around 12%. And they were used over and over against, as I say, the president in that campaign. Well, in the 1980 campaign, they didn't mention the misery index because it had risen to 20.8%. I'm happy to tell you the misery index is now currently 9.8%. Still, there is pressure from many sides to retreat to business as usual. Thank you. There are still those in leadership positions who would allow government to grow bigger and bigger. Many well-intentioned people suggest that we can't spend less and we must tax more. As the decisions become tougher and the stakes get higher, some people in Washington are throwing up their hands. Their only answer for our energy problems, for our economy, and for virtually any difficulty at all is more government. Well, we will continue to press for a bipartisan budget. But the only compromise offered so far has been, if our side agrees to raise taxes, the other side will continue to increase spending. You know, trying to end the recession or eliminate the deficit by raising taxes is like the Big Orange trying to pull a football game out in the fourth quarter by punting on third down. Well, no government No government in the history of civilization has ever voluntarily reduced itself in size. But with God's help, this one's going to. Yes, we had the largest... Let us realize that free men and women still have the power to better their lives and raise the standard of living for all mankind. Let us recognize that those things that bind us and keep us strong, our democratic political institutions, our market economic systems, our commitment to liberty, and our belief and faith in human dignity. And let us reaffirm 
our partnership among citizens, among states, and among nations. What a partnership it was for this community to bring forth this great exposition. Maybe we should all recall that late in the last century, there was a great world exposition. And at that time, there was a member of our Congress who actually proposed a measure to eliminate the patent office because he said everything had been invented that needed to be invented or that could be invented. Well, I wouldn't be talking into a microphone today if we'd gone along with that. As we pool knowledge and resources here in Knoxville, our cooperation will become the keystone of a more peaceful and a stable world. And now I'm looking forward to seeing something of this exposition. Thank you all. Have a good time and God bless you. The thing that brought Knoxville together was the Wall Street Journal story about the scruffy little city. And, uh, you know, it's okay for us to fight among ourselves. Don't let an outsider come in and tell us that we're not, not so good. And, and I think it was saying, all right, you know, by golly, we're going to do this. It just seemed like it didn't make any difference uh, who you were, what you were. Everybody came together in order to make it happen. So it was just a remarkable achievement for this community, and a lot of people deserve a lot of credit for it. You know, sometimes I've often said my uh, main management tool was ignorance is that we didn't know we couldn't do it. We didn't, you know, people would say, well, you're doing what, where? And we say, well, uh, and we didn't know enough to know that we couldn't pull this together in Knoxville. Well, the biggest struggle we had to overcome was the, uh, we knew we could do it, but the world perhaps didn't know we could do it. I'm a little bit prejudiced, you understand, but I'd have to have to say it was uh, a tremendous success. That a lot of people really thought, hey, we can't do this, is it worth it? The people coming to town, they'll, they'll, <laughs> you know, it'll be a mess. But it really wasn't. It, it, came, it came off in a remarkably smooth way. And I think in the end, uh, the naysayers were all proved wrong and not, Knoxville did it. And I think it made everybody in Knoxville feel better. It really, really did. The fair was a marketer's dream come true. Companies and corporations set up exhibits to show off their latest technology. They had a captive audience, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people coming to the fair every day. They were stunned, impressed with what they saw. Is that for real? The Lifestyles and Technology Center was the place to go to see all these advancements in modern technology. Here, Texaco introduced its new gas pump to the public. The interactive display showed people that by swiping a Texaco credit card and entering an ID number, you could actually pump and pay at any time of the day, even when the gas station was closed. And it would even give you a receipt for your purchase. Just imagine that. They were mainly designed for convenience. They're very convenient to the customer, open 24 hours a day. Also, they cut down on theft and things like that. Well, I think they're the thing of the future, and it's very interesting to operate. Were they pretty simple to operate? Oh, very much so. All you got to do is just answer the machine. These Texaco pumps are one of the many new innovations. Displayed. In 1982, this gas pump was the thing of the future. 25 years later, it's just a typical pump. The gas that it's pumping, however, has gone from an average of $1.34 a gallon to twice that 25 years later. Hey, can I look at it? Okay, how about this one? A Lincoln Continental with a built-in mobile phone. Kathy, this is a relatively simple uh, system to operate. You dial your number um, 
through the uh, electronic instrument panel on the dashboard. It's located here. And uh, you talk through a concealed microphone in the sun visor, and you hear over the car radio speakers. Every 15 to 20 minutes, some lucky person standing in line to enter the Cathedral Light home is chosen to try out this phone system by making a long-distance phone call anywhere in the world for three minutes, courtesy of the Ford Motor Company. Hello, Dave. Yeah. Hey, this is Mark. You ain't never gonna believe where I am. <laughs> I'm gonna take this out. I'm gonna sign a car at the World's Fair. Just think, in a couple of years, we could all be driving down the highway talking to our sun visors. I'm Kathy Kirk for World's Fair Update. In 1982, a car phone was a novelty. 25 years later, there are laws in some states against talking on a cell phone while driving. Here's one more piece of modern technology that had people talking and pulling out their wallets. Visitors to the 1982 World's Fair took a lot of pictures. There was even a Kodak store on site that would loan you a new disc camera for free if you bought the film. But most brought their own cameras, big ones and little ones. And flash cubes, remember flash cubes? If your camera didn't spit out the picture right away like a Polaroid camera, you could get impatient waiting until you got home to get your film developed. But revolutionary technology on the fair site let visitors get their film processed in just one hour. You know, we offer a custom quality print, which is density and color corrected in 60 minutes. And we, you know, people find that, you know, they're very excited about this. In 1982, a 60-minute photo, one-hour film developing cost $1.99 for processing and 29 cents for each print. So a roll of 24 exposures will cost about $9. It's not too much more than one-hour processing cost 25 years later. Energy turns the world. That was the theme of the International Energy Exposition. We called it the 1982 World's Fair. Exhibits reflected how, as a global society, we use the precious natural resources we have. We also looked at how we could conserve them. The theme of this fair, Energy Turns the World, is appropriate for this decade as our nation and many of our allies struggle to produce and use energy efficiently to provide for our energy security. We've At the opening ceremonies, President Ronald Reagan focused his speech on avoiding another energy crisis. In the 70s, there were long gasoline lines, oil embargoes. He hoped the 80s would be different. Together and independently, we've taken steps to make sure that never again will we be so vulnerable. For a homeowner, lowering fuel consumption meant making lifestyle changes. At the energy-saving house at the World's Fair, homeowners were taught how they could cut back on energy usage by making changes to their heating, cooling, plumbing, and insulation. But there was also alternative housing set up on site for people who wanted to take more drastic measures. Take the Cathedral Light Home, for example. The manufacturer of these geodesic homes says the energy crisis boosted its business. The concern over energy conservation encouraged more people to build a dome home. Wind turbines generate the electrical power, solar energy heats the hot water, and the high curved ceilings allowed the air to circulate. There's less exterior surface area, so when you look at this house, you're looking at less visible surface area, but on the inside, you have just as much square footage. You know, this house would be a normal three-bedroom, two-bath, uh, kitchen, living, dining home. If you'd prefer a solar house, there was one of those to tour as well. Solar panels on the roof draw the heat from the sun. 
This solar energy is then put to use heating the entire house. A Tennessee Valley Authority had half of a house on display to show visitors examples of energy conservation. It even had a greenhouse to show homeowners how to grow plants. The changes weren't confined to the housing industry. The automotive industry had a few things to show off, too, way before hybrids were hip. Now let's take a look into the future with this sleek, futuristic concept car, the AFV, or Alternative Fuel Vehicle, featured here in a dark and light pewter combination. We've already used about 60% of the petroleum in the world, so somewhere down the road we've got to turn to some other means of uh, powering our motor vehicles. If energy didn't interest you, there were a lot of other attractions to enjoy. Up next, we'll look back at two legendary performers who made us laugh and visit two places on the fair site where a good time was guaranteed. Energy was a serious theme for the 1982 World's Fair, but there was plenty of opportunity to lighten the mood. Big-name entertainers, legendary ones, stopped in Knoxville to make us laugh. Uh, how are you? I'm happy to see all of you. I don't need... Red Skelton met with reporters and won them over with his humility and humor. He talked about his love of both performing and painting. Like I did some flowers once, and I said, where'd you get the Van Gogh? I said, it's not a Van Gogh. I painted that. That's a Van Gogh. No, I painted it. Well, boy, you're another Van Gogh. Well, you get to believe this, see? <laughs> so finally my wife says to me one day, she says, what's this nutty stuff about you being Van Gogh? You're a red skeleton. I says, oh, yeah, it's a little nutty. So I felt so ashamed, I went down to the hospital and had him sew my ear back on. <laughs> on his 74th birthday, comedian Bob Hope sat down for an interview with Channel 10's Rob Brown. First of all, happy birthday. Thank you very much. Your staff said if I didn't say you were 52 that they wouldn't get their <laughs> checks. I've got them brainwashed, haven't I? I've been brainwashing them for years. The natural question is how do you stay looking so young and healthy? Well, I, I know you're trying to butter me up a little just for doing this interview with you. <laughs> but uh, I feel fine. I play a lot of golf and enjoy myself. And, but I black out when I tie my shoes in the morning. <laughs> Bill Cosby, well on his way to becoming legendary himself, also entertained audiences. Every day I have the blues. Now here's a look at just a few of the famous faces who brought their acts to the World's Fair. Especially you ladies, who are the main offenders. Before they call him a man. I grew up in, in the Seattle area. And do you recognize this guy? How about now? It's best-selling saxophone player Kenny G. He performed at the fair as a member of the Jeff Lorber Fusion. The World's Fair was centered in what is now known as the World's Fair Park, but there were exhibits and events all over the 72-acre site, all the way from downtown Knoxville to the University of Tennessee. One of the busiest places right here in the shadow of Neyland Stadium. It was known as Funland. 
Riding the giant Ferris wheel is a fond memory for many people who came to the fair. The wheel stood 150 feet high and could carry as many as 240 people at one time, six people to a cabin. It was the largest wheel in the Western Hemisphere, shipped over from Germany, but it almost didn't make it. Because of its size, a lot of the pieces, important pieces, could not fit in the hole of the ship. And on the second shipment, they got into bad weather and uh, a portion of it was washed overboard and lost in the Atlantic. Uh, this happened two weeks before the fair was to open on May 1, and we, we frantically had them reproduced in Amsterdam, and they uh, were flown over here by the largest commercial uh, carrier, which is a 747 uh, Flying Tigers nose loader. And uh, when that, that plane touched down and unloaded, it was the first time a plane of that size had landed here at McGee Tyson Airport. In spite of new parts and last minute assembly, they reported no maintenance problems with the Ferris wheel. Now, here's a look at some of the other rides here at Funland. One place for the grown-ups to have fun was at the Stroh House. Housed inside the empty old Knoxville Iron Foundry, the German beer garden served German food, played German music, and had plenty of German beer on tap. It drew a crowd every night and brought them to their feet. It's unbelievable. We sat there, we were amazed the first night. We saw people, 1780s, dance down the aisle. We could not believe that we could see these people get carried away as much. We didn't know how people reacted here to this type of thing. When people got up and started dancing on the tables, I tell you the truth, it, it made me feel so good. I said, my God, look at the people enjoy themselves. And Tom, we just sat back and looked at each other and shook our heads. We couldn't believe what was going on. You might not have known many people when you walked into the Stroh House, but by the time you left, you probably made quite a few new friends. The Stroh House has taken on new life after the 1982 World's Fair. The building is now simply called the Foundry. It's rented out for civic meetings, banquets, and special occasions. The planning and preparation it took to pull off the World's Fair required unprecedented cooperation among civic leaders. When we come back, we'll look at the many changes we had to make before we could welcome the world. And we'll hear more from Jake Butcher about his role in the event. World's Fair Park looks a lot different today than it did in 1982. For years after the fair, the court of flags, the waters of the world remained. But a few years ago, it changed. A new convention center is now the centerpiece of the property. It's surrounded by a lake and fountains, and this beautiful lawn used to be the waters of the world. But if you go back 30 years, this was a blighted area, ripe for improvement. It took a community effort to get past the controversy 
all the way to completion. In the mid-70s, Knoxville leaders needed what they called a quantum jump to revitalize downtown, revive the economy, and attract tourist dollars. The idea was brought forward to have a World's Fair. The plan mushroomed, city leaders came on board, and banker Jake Butcher became the power behind the movement. But there were opponents. Joe Dodd, UT political science professor, was one. It involves a lot of risk. Fair planners asked the city to purchase the proposed site of the fair, a decrepit old train switching yard in the lower Second Creek Valley, 85 acres. It stretches from Henley to 11th Street, from Western Avenue to Fort Loudon Lake. City Council debated on whether to hold a referendum, allow voters to decide whether to issue $11.6 million in bonds to buy the property. Councilwoman Bernice O'Connor argued for the referendum. Anybody who votes to table this motion tonight is against our referendum. They will not let the people enough for vote. Now, I've heard this so many times, I'm sick of it. You voted. But they know out there how you feel about it. The majority of city council refused to call for a referendum. Bonds were issued. The way was cleared for preparation for the fair, then titled Expo 82. And for the six months that it's open, Expo 82, they say, will attract 70,000 people a day. And Expo opponents said that many visitors would jam the highways. The infamous Malfunction Junction was already a traffic bottleneck. Uh, bringing the folks down Malfunction Junction, where they're going to be backed up almost all the way to Chicago, or at least to the Kentucky state line, I can't see that that's a way to revitalize uh, Central City. But the Department of Transportation promised to fix the interstate problems. We're not doing this because of Expo, but because of Expo, we may be doing it a little bit faster than we normally would. That promise was kept with a new configuration of ramps at the old Malfunction Junction. Governor Lamar Alexander opened the new roadway. Knoxville and Knox County are prepared for our visitors as they come in, both during the World's Fair and, more importantly, forever after. While road improvements were taking place, so were improvements here in the lower Second Creek Valley, that old train switching yard. It was a $100 million project. A little more than 10% came to the city to buy the site, the abandoned area in the lower Second Creek Valley. The federal government kicked in $12 million for site development, $20 million for the U.S. Pavilion. Banks, including Jake Butcher's United American, put up $30 million in loans. The rest came from corporations, exhibitors, and Knoxvillians who alone contributed a million dollars. As work began on the fair, the State Department of Transportation widened Interstates 40 and 75, rebuilt Malfunction Junction, and completed the I-640 Beltway. As the years, months, and days counted down to opening day, work on the fair site itself was feverish. Old buildings on the periphery of the site, including the candy factory, the Ellen Inn Hotel, and the old Knoxville Iron Foundry were renovated. There were naysayers, locally and nationally. The Wall Street Journal published an article that questioned whether a World's Fair could be successful in Knoxville, which the journal called a scruffy little city on the banks of the Tennessee River. In the months prior to the fair, some people who owned rental housing near the fair site evicted about a thousand monthly tenants in order to cash in on high-priced rentals to fair visitors. But during the fair, many of those rentals stayed vacant. Greedy apartment owners lost money. Construction and final spruce-up of the exhibits continued even until the last hours before opening day. 
Then, nearly 100,000 people streamed through the gates on May 1, 1982 to see exhibits by 22 nations, 90 corporations, and six states. And to witness the President of the United States officially open Knoxville's 1982 World's Fair. The idea of having a World's Fair came from Stuart Evans, who at that time was President of the Downtown Knoxville Association. Several key leaders embraced the idea, set out to make it happen. And most people agree that one man who deserves a lot of credit for making it happen was former banker Jake Butcher. It was a big, then a challenge. Then someone I think in the Wall Street Journal said, the scruffy little river city. You know, sometimes that's like in, in baseball or sports, when somebody ribs you a little bit, you want to try, you want to try a little bit harder. So then I talked to my banking buddies at NCNB in Charlotte and then Chemical Bank in New York and CNS Bank in Atlanta, some people who I knew very well. And, they agreed to help us. So I came up with a plan that the Knoxville Bank so that it would be the first to put the money in and the last to get paid. Then the East Tennessee Banks outside of Knoxville would be second in, second last to be paid. Then I went the line to where the big banks, like Barclays Bank in London, uh, American Security in Washington, D.C., Chemical Bank in New York, New York, and a couple of other big banks uh, were the last to put their money in. Well, at that time, the superstructure had begun. So they weren't, they weren't too afraid then because they nearly got their money back before they put it in because ticket sales had started then. I knew most of the governors that surrounded Tennessee. So we asked a lot of those people to come back with Tennessee and maybe give us a higher proportion amount of their federal funds that Tennessee could use to expedite finishing Malfunction Junction. And there's a lot more detail in that to go with it, but it, it was done in, a, in probably about a year and a half or two years when it would have taken 10 years otherwise. It took a lot of people, a lot of different people, and many people have never been credit for it. Sometimes I get a lot of blame, sometimes I get a lot of credit. I probably shouldn't be blamed that much, but I don't deserve all the credit. But uh, there's a lot of people that made this thing happen. The World's Fair was a great success. And one of its lasting images is the Sun Sphere. It's the most recognizable image of the 1982 World's Fair. The Golden Globe was chosen to represent the energy theme of the fair, and as a monument to the sun. Traditionally, the World's Fair had one structure that stood above all others. Paris had the Eiffel Tower, Seattle the Space Needle, and Knoxville, that structure was the Sun Sphere. The Sun Sphere stands 266 feet high. The ball is made up of two levels of glass. At the bottom, there's tempered glass on the inside and laminated on the outside. That way, if the inside layer ever broke, the outside layer would catch it, preventing it from crashing to the ground. The reverse is true for the top of the ball. During the World's Fair, the Sun Sphere had two observation decks and three restaurants. This summer, the Sun Sphere will have another observation deck, and a catering company will occupy two floors of the structure. The globe will be available to be rented for receptions. The only other structure built just for the World's Fair that remains is the Tennessee Amphitheater. Plenty of talented people performed on its stage during the fair. 25 years later, the structure is owned by the city of Knoxville. It is showing its age, so the city plans to remodel it and open it for use in the fall. The other structure that was built to last was the U.S. Pavilion. It was the largest pavilion on the World's Fair site. It was an imposing sight. 
a $12.4 million cantilevered structure made from steel and glass that stood six stories high. Inside, the crowds who visited saw the complete energy story of our country from 1800 to 1982. It was spread out over 83,000 square feet of exhibition space. When the World's Fair ended, the U.S. Pavilion stood for a while, but later the city decided the land was worth more than the building, and on April 6, 1991, the walls came tumbling down. What was left was sold as scrap metal. 22 nations participated in the World's Fair and visitors got to learn a little bit about each one of them. When we come back, we'll learn about their customs and culture through music and dance. Twenty-two nations put themselves on display at the 1982 World's Fair, and the crown jewel of the pack was the People's Republic of China. It was the first time China had ever taken part in a World's Fair. <laughs> the longest lines were routinely found outside of the Chinese pavilion. During its week of celebration, performers took the stage, but so did politics. Speaking through an interpreter, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. visited the fair and talk tough about the U.S. role in arms sales to Taiwan. As far as relations between Taiwan and the United States are concerned, the United States and Taiwan can only maintain unofficial relations. But if the United States uh, insists on selling weapons to Taiwan, then relations uh, between China and the United States uh, will be affected. And uh, or worse still, there will be retrogression. On a much lighter note, the talk near the Hungarian pavilion was about the giant Rubik's cubes found outside and inside. The man who invented the color panel puzzle is Hungarian One, professor two, Erno Rubik. Go. He came to the fair to oversee a Rubik's cube competition. The winner, a 14-year-old from Pittsburgh who solved the puzzle in just under 50 seconds. During Japan's National Week at the fair, Japanese dignitaries came to the fair site Traditional Japanese dancers performed, and the fair received a rare visit from Japan's Kabuki Theater. Peru had perhaps the most unusual exhibit. A team of archaeologists unveiled a mummy. The mummy was wrapped in what's called a funeral bundle that looks like this. The unveiling was done before an invited crowd of about 800. The mummy was that of a one to three year old Incan child believed to be five centuries old. Maybe there's something else in the bag that will UT's give forensic anthropologist Dr. William Bass participated in the unveiling. Saudi Arabia's announcement caught everyone by surprise. 
The most dramatic news on the fair site this week was the announcement yesterday by the Saudi Arabian government that it will cancel its country's national week here at the fair. That national week was scheduled to begin next Monday. Stating that this is an inappropriate time to celebrate, officials of the Saudi Arabian pavilion said that funds allocated for the national week celebration will be used to aid Lebanese and Palestinian refugees in war-torn Lebanon. The Philippines exhibit proved to be a popular one. So popular, in fact, that it expanded during the fair. The food, the performers. This jeepney all captivated the crowds. The pavilion also received a visit from Philippine First Lady Imelda Marcos. I did not expect this to be this big and um, this uh, well done. The Koreans were eager to show off their culture to the crowd. The ceremonies celebrating Korean National Week were marked with colorful performers. The Koreans wanted everyone to know them because six years later, they'd be welcoming the world at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. And as in Britain, England's famous puppets Punch and Judy entertained the crowds. And to really make a statement, the future King of England was born during Britain's National Week at the fair. Charles and Diana welcomed home their firstborn son, Prince William. Music echoed throughout the fair site. There were marching bands, orchestras, solo artists, all with their own unique sounds, all warmly received by the audiences. We learned a lot about our culture's differences by the traditional dances that were performed here at the fair. Here's a sampling from five continents.
There were many different stages where those performances took place, but a lot of them could be seen under the shade of a big old elm tree. It was the Elm Tree Theater. Developers of the World's Fair site were proud they were able to build around so many trees on the property, 150 in all. But the one tree that stood taller than all the others was a giant old elm. This stately old tree had to stay, and organizers called in a tree doctor to rid it of bugs and pests. We're nursing it uh, to be sure that it uh, stays alive both during for the fair, the fair and afterwards. Soon, with a stage built around it, the elm tree was the background for entertainers from all over the world. The Elm Tree Theater was a main venue at the World's Fair. But a few years after the fair, the old tree was ailing. In the end, it was Mother Nature that claimed the elm with an unexpected bolt of lightning. The rest of the tree was then cut down. The lines to the exhibits could be long, but that didn't mean those waiting were missing out on the entertainment. A lot of performers wandered around the grounds, taking their acts to the people. There was a lot of stuff going on off-site as well. Tomorrow night, super songster James Taylor performs at the Civic Coliseum. And at the Civic Auditorium, a chorus line opens. There are also two more performances of a chorus line on Saturday night. And at Nayland Stadium on Saturday, the Pittsburgh Steelers face off against the New England Patriots. The World's Fair site was also the perfect spot for artists to show off their talents. You may not realize this, but the World's Fair had an official artist. He was Peter Max, the painter whose love of color and whimsical styles made him internationally famous. Max painted three posters for the World's Fair. There was something for everyone at the 1982 World's Fair. Visitors were educated, entertained, with an international flair. But sometimes it's the smallest things who are most memorable. When we come back, we'll look at the little things that made a big impression. There was plenty to eat and drink at the 1982 World's Fair. There was fine dining and there was fun dining. Who are these skinny dippers? When two women decided to start a business venture at the World's Fair, the name they gave it really attracted attention. They were selling skinny dippers. Now, there was nothing suggestive or obscene about their food booth. A skinny dipper was a potato skin with a variety of toppings. Most places serve them for appetizers. And we thought that that might go over. And has it? Oh yes, oh yes, we have done a lot of skinny dipping. <laughs> they worked on the project for two years before setting up shop. The skinny dippers sold well, business was good, but the women admit it was hard work. So if you're looking on another part of the fair site, two men decided to do the same thing. They called their snack Petroleum Bellies. Eh, that name didn't sound too appetizing, so they shortened it to Petros. It's just going to be a temporary little thing and we're going to have a nice summer job in the fall, take a few months off from school and I was going to go to law school and Dale was going to go back and get his MBA and still have chili under our nails after all these years. One thing that many people got to taste for free was at the Dairyman's exhibit. Small glasses of real cow's milk were handed out to promote milk that was processed differently. It was called UHT milk and it could be kept on a shelf, unrefrigerated, unopened for three months. 
combination of the processing and packaging made it possible, the reviews were mixed. But a different dairy product was much better received. For one day, ice cream day, 12,000 people got free ice cream cups. The giveaway proved to be a cool and sweet way to beat the heat. In 1982, E.T. was in all movie theaters. Pac-Man was in all the arcades. At the World's Fair, Heinz Pickle Pins were a popular souvenir, sometimes hard to come by. Here are a couple of more things that might bring back fond memories of the fair. Heinz found a unique way to promote its ketchup. This giant ketchup bottle could be found greeting guests all over the fair site. It delighted all the children and it was a popular photo op for many visitors. Pictures taken at another site on the fairgrounds became part of a popular souvenir. The Kodak booth was the first stop. The stamps were collected in souvenir passports. Each visit to a new pavilion earned you a stamp. It became a contest among many people to see how many stamps they could collect. If you'd rather visit another era rather than another culture, this was a place to capture it all on film. Gene Patterson and Rob Braun did. Oh, come on! It's heads, Rob. Oh, come on. You have to do it. Maybe two out of three? Forget it. A deal's a deal, right? You're, oh, all right. You have to do it. Let's all right. Come on. Let's go. These old-time American costumes and scenic backdrops had people lining up to relive the past. Some pictures, however, were more attractive than others. As you walk past the European Community Pavilion, you had to notice a giant sculpture out front. It stood 35 feet high and kids loved climbing on it. It was designed by a British artist and was based on a computer printout of a sunburst. And he's translated the sunburst into these ceramic tiles in these various colors to present the radiation and the heat of the sun. The artist was so particular about the color of tiles, he had them specially fired in Europe and shipped from there. Craftsmen representing North Carolina furniture makers built one of the biggest things on display. This giant bed, built by seven craftsmen, weighed 4,000 pounds. How big is this thing? Well, the bed itself is 17 feet by 6 inches wide, 21 feet by 6 inches long, and 11 feet 11 inches high. The giant bed was covered by a giant quilt. 96 women made the quilt. Each 18-inch square was hand-sewn. In all, one million hand-sewn stitches held the giant masterpiece together. There have been those people who say there's not much sports going on here at the World's Fair so far, but if you look around, there's sports all over the place. In our travels today, we found your typical bench warmers and various race car drivers. In basketball, we saw a low post and then, of course, a double low post. We saw a pit stop and a first-round draft choice. In baseball, you would call this next play a strikeout. We found a backfield in motion, a touchdown, and a goal. We saw a double dribble violation and a double foul. Then we saw a charging foul. And, of course, you have your uh, personal foul. A la Daryl Waltrip, we saw a pole sitter. So, as you can see, there's plenty of sports going on here at the World's Fair each and every day. This is Bob Kessling, Action 10 Sport. <laughs> and that's what you call a Grand Slam. Up next, the 1982 World's Fair was considered an instrument for peace. For six months, it brought nations together. 
It also brought individuals together. When we come back, we'll have a couple of love stories. More than 11 million people came through the turnstiles at the 1982 World's Fair. They went home with souvenirs, with pictures, with memories, and in a few cases, a new spouse. Carl Van Wagner proposed to Sandra Hopkins around lunchtime one day. By the time she got home from work that evening, he had the wedding all planned. He wanted to be married at the World's Fair. Sandra agreed, and on Memorial Day weekend, they came to Knoxville. Carl and Sandra Van Wagner will celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary at the end of this month. Carl says that 25 years have just flown by. Long lines have been one of the few major complaints of visitors here at the... When Channel 10's Rob Braun set out to do a story on the best way to avoid long lines at the fair's pavilions, he asked for advice from one of the volunteer hostesses. Jennifer McCall from VIP Services gives information to fair visitors all day long and suggests evenings as the best time to see the fair. Usually after dark it's pretty good. A lot of the tour buses leave like about 7 or 8 and so the lines go down after dark for sure. It's a lot cooler too. It was a nice interview and we, we did fine and we were uh, packing up to leave and the photographer kept elbowing me and he said, that girl likes you. He said, you need, you need to talk to that girl, find out who she is. And so I, you know, I thought about it and thought about it and we'd left and went home and did our package and then the next day I just happened to bump into her again. You know, somehow I, I, I found her. Rob and Jennifer had their first date on the 4th of July that year. By August 1st, they were engaged. Rob proposed near the Sun's Fair. They married six months later, toasting each other with a memento of the fair. 25 years later, they have two children and will celebrate their 25th anniversary next year. A silver anniversary is a wonderful time to reflect. We remember back to a community that worked together, overcame obstacles, achieved the impossible. Civic leaders with imagination and vision who took on a challenge, transformed a city. And East Tennesseans who showed the world what true Southern hospitality really is. I think the fair gave this region, I think it gave East Tennessee um, just a big jolt of confidence. And I tell you what, it was one of the most fun six months. It was like a UT football game every day. I mean, it was like a football Saturday every day. There was excitement in town. I mean, 100,000 people were, were out there average every day. So, I mean, you figured out it was just, it was a ton of fun. It was a UT Saturday every day. I'm a, a, a great believer in the philosopher Satchel Page. You know, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. So I, I think it was, it was really a, 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 quite a trip and, and, uh, and, and a lot of fun, a lot of challenges but uh, ended up being watching the people on the site having fun, watching the, 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 the children and the adults, particularly from Knoxville, who came many times, uh, all the fun they were having. Uh, that made it all worth it. We basically took Warhol's 15 minutes of fame and turned it into a 180-day uh, celebration of uh, just uh, cultural, uh, educational, um, economic benefits to the community. I absolutely loved every minute of the fair, even though it was a whole lot of hard work, um, principally because it was all live programming. 
Um, we had so much fun because we were all learning. We were young. We were cub reporters, um, and we were doing at minimum five five-minute live cut-ins a day, and we just had to do the entertainment side of the fair, and that's what we did. We told folks what was going on at the World's Fair that day, and it was fun. There was not a day we went to work when we didn't just have a ball. But I think for those who, who did come and who did enjoy it, I think it really left a, a kind of permanent mark, and I think 25 years later, people, you know, I think still have good feelings about it. What'd you like best? You know, I hadn't even thought of that. I really hadn't. I, I think the the pageantry and also being a former Marine, having the Commandant of the Marine down here, the Marine Corps band, and, and you know, it's just uh, very, very emotional and very patriotic. History is the ultimate judge of whether you fail or succeed. And the history is judged us kindly. My most significant memories of the 1982 World's Fair were all the broadcasts that we did live from here at the World's Fair site. I'll never forget May 1st, 1982. Bob Brown from Cincinnati, Margie Eisen, Edie Ellis and I hosted a five hour marathon live broadcast which included all the opening ceremonies. A marvelous time. For those six months we did every newscast here at the fair. There was a special World's Fair programming, the five minute programs, the wrap ups, the 30 minute Welcome World program at the end of the week. It was all such great fun. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm so glad that we were privileged to be a part of it. In the 25 years that have passed since the beginning of the fair, some of the old crew have moved on, some moved just down the street. But we're all bonded together with those special memories we had of that wonderful, glorious time because it was one of our stories. I'm Bill Williams. Thanks for watching. Well, I have a anecdote to add to the World's Fair situation, I um, applied to be a cashier at one of the souvenir shops. And interestingly enough, I had to almost tell a kind of a white lie on the application process. They wanted to know if I had any cashier experience. And up to that point, I technically didn't really have that as a job title or anything. Um, but what I did is I worked at Target, the first one in Tennessee, I believe, over on Ray Mears, helped stocking it, and then one day um, the, the snack bar person had to leave early or whatever, and they wanted me to cover for them, and I rang up a couple of three, three, a couple of things, popcorn, whatever we were selling back then. So on the application, I said, yeah, I mean, uh, so you worked at Target, and they wanted to know how long did I work there, and I said six months, and they said, did you do cashier experience? I said, yeah, I've got it right there, so anyway. Well, I got hired, and boy, did I do some cashiering at that point, because good night, nurse. I mean, everybody came through there. We were right under the sun sphere on the bridge. So there was M4 East, and then there was M4 West. The west side was near the candy factory. The east was right under the sphere. And um, one day I waited on that very attractive NFL announcer lady um, who... Uh, let's see what was her name Jane Jane something anyway she came into the shop and she wanted to get some tiny little souvenir t-shirt for her new uh, daughter who she just had um, so I got to ring her up on that and, and uh, suggest other things of course uh, the shop was not that big I mean it was just almost like the size of 
uh, what can I say, a fruit stand. Um, and we were crammed back in the back. We couldn't barely move around. We did have these little foam um, pads to stand on. But I remember I was really good friends with my uh, manager. Her name was Linda. We hit it off pretty good. Our senses, senses of humor were pretty uh, a lot alike, and we understood each other. And, and one day, you know, I mean, every day somebody would come over and say, what's the quickest way to get down to the lower level? And I told Linda, I said, I swear to God, if one more person asked me that question, this is what I'm going to say, Linda. I'm going to say, okay, the quickest way is I'll go over to the railing there. See there on the other side of our shop? And you climb up on the railing and jump! <laughs> but of course, I never got to tell anybody that. I did work there pretty much uh, for the duration of the fair. I think I got hired on like June the 7th or something and went to the end. And every night uh, was the fireworks presentation. That's when everybody would empty out and go perch somewhere to watch the fireworks. So we got a reprieve, a little break there. We didn't have to do anything but stock and straighten, of course, you know, everything. And then one guy comes in there uh, from Texas. He's, you know, Big Tex. Uh, is your name uh, Big Tex? No, my name's Louise. Why do you call yourself Big Tex? Well, I'm from Louisiana. Nobody wants to be called Louise or something like that. I can't remember the joke now. But anyway, this guy, he comes in there. He wants to buy us out on the little medallions. If you remember, they were round and uh, some kind of fake bronze. And they had the logos of, like, the flag and uh, the little energy logo and the sun sphere, of course, U.S. Pavilion in the backdrop. And they were running, I think, $9.95 per medallion. And much bigger than a dollar coin, the old Kennedy dollar coins, uh, I don't know, probably that size and half that size in diameter bigger. Um, but anyway, he, he wanted to buy a bunch. Of course, he had uh, the designs of taking them back to, to Dallas or wherever he was from and reselling them at a profit. Well, our uh, district manager was just at the other store. He came down and he said, okay, well, we'll give you a discount since you're buying so many. He bought like um, 15, um, let's see, how many did he buy? 150. The total purchase would have been about $1,500, but we knocked, like, big discounts, like 500 of it off. So he had to pay $1,000 for his coins. And I rang that up on my dinky little register that would only go to $99.99. So I had to hit that thing, you know, 10 times. And then later that night, uh, we're doing, like, the tally to find out. Um, you, 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 at the end of the night, your register's all, you know, you add up everything, and you, and you check it against the sales on the register. Well, I'm $100 short, even. And, you know, I remember that guy. He gave me like 10, at least 10, $100 bills to pay for this thing in cash. I shoved them into my drawer. Well, we were looking everywhere for that. And Linda knew I wouldn't do anything weird like that. Um, so finally, uh, took the register drawer out. And there it is, back in the back, just smiling at everybody. So that was interesting. And then I found out later on that up until that point, of course, this is, uh, I don't know, this is like maybe toward the end of the fair, uh, September, October of 1982, I found out that was the largest on-site souvenir purchase of any World's Fair to date. And I got to ring it up. So that was my little uh, cha-ching to fang there. <laughs> but that's my little anecdote working at the World's Fair. It was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, just... Um, 
you know, what's it been now? This is, that was, yeah, this is like 40 years ago. Of course, a 40-year reunion. That's how you remember it, because uh, our annual, when you open up the pages, you get the little model of the World's Fair that was coming to town, and then we did all of our senior superlative photo shoot. Uh, the photo shoot was done on site. Some of the places weren't even constructed yet. If you look where me and Gwen are kind of like acting silly, that round metal thing, I think it ended up on the top of um, either the Stroh House or the Chinese Pavilion. I can't remember. Probably the Chinese Pavilion because it was red. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of places when we did that photo shoot. It wasn't even constructed all the way yet. Um, I'll try to find an old photo that I took of the Sun Sphere when it was like halfway done. It was interesting to look at that. Uh, almost looked like some kind of a uh, giant, um, you know, poached egg holder for King Kong or something. All right, so that's about it there for the World's Fair. Um, and uh, we'll see you at the reunion, okay? Right? Okay.